Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and as usual, I am your host. Uh, very short episode last week, about 30 minutes. Going to be longer this week. We have we have a big pay-per-view to preview. We're talking UFC 280. That's going to take up, I imagine, the bulk of the... Uh, the bulk of the time here. But not only that, there was UFC on ESPN Plus 70 this last Saturday. Pretty big weekend in the world of boxing I want to talk very briefly about, because I want to talk about it, and I can. Uh, and then, some news. Uh, a lot of it can fall into like one or two categories, but a few things to talk about. So, before we get going, as always... Please interact with the product any way you can. Like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review. If you've done any and all of that, please share. That's the best way to help the show. Tell people you know online, tell people you know in person. Anything that you can do to kind of point them in our direction and let the show try to win them over. So, thank you very much in advance. Deeply appreciate all of you for listening. Right, uh, shouldn't take too long. UFC on ESPN Plus 70. Um, during fight week, we lost the two most interesting fights on this card. Um, I mentioned this before in the, in the preview, actually. I was very much looking forward to Daniel Rodriguez and Neil Magny. That got moved. There was an injury to Daniel Rodriguez. Uh, hopefully he heals up. But he had an elbow injury. Double check that. Yeah, an elbow infection. I might have, I might have mentioned that last week. That one might have fallen off beforehand, so maybe the last two weeks. Um, that's currently scheduled for an upcoming event in November. That actually just lost its main event. Um, they rescheduled that for UFC Fight Night 214. This was originally supposed to be headlined by uh, Bryce Mitchell and Movsar Evloev, which is a darn good fight. Unfortunately, Evloev had to fall out, had some kind of an injury. Um... Not official yet, but news coming out of all camps is that Ilya Teporia is replacing Evloyev. Uh, that's a good fight. That's still a good fight. It's not quite... I, I don't think that's quite what it used to be. I was very much looking forward to Evloyev and Mitchell. I thought they would have a... Re the grappling between those two would have been something. Teporia... Teporia might be... There's more like blunt force trauma threat from Teporia. He's a much better striker. But I think the I don't think there's quite as much parity across the board as there would have been with because if Mitchell doesn't have a, a great uh, advantage in the wrestling and grappling, and I don't think he would have over Evloyev. It doesn't mean he couldn't have beaten him that way, but does he have a big advantage there? I, I don't think so. Um, Tapori is much more of a striker. Uh, again, I'm not complaining about this for the record. You know, Teporia is very good. Uh, it's just not quite what it used to be. How does that card look, by the way? That's not going to draw a ton of interest. Um, certainly not. It's not going to draw almost any, uh, you know, casual interest. But there's some decent stuff there. 
Yeah, that's actually not a bad card. That's supposed to take place November 5th. We will preview that, of course, before it happens. But um, during, like, the day of weigh-in, so day before, um, Askar Askarov and Brandon Royville fell out. There was a weight-cutting issue with Askarov. He told everyone, I'm not going to make weight. I don't know what exactly happened there. Uh, then, I take this with a grain of salt, because the way it was spun was they offered... Um, they offered a catch weight of, I forget what it was. Um, again, this is all kind of hearsay. In theory, there was a catch weight offered that Askarov still turned down. Now, this immediately, because of how it was reported and fighters being fighters, kind of got memed on. You know, who's who miss, who's going to miss weight and then won't accept a catch weight fight? And if that's what happened... And it, then fair enough, like that that's a bad look. Uh, the flip side of that happens to be if whatever he was dealing with that caused him to miss weight was serious enough, then, you know, that might have been more it. And that it was medically inadvisable for him to actually go through with the fight. I've been a pretty big, you know, I'm a pretty vocal believer in the fighting ability of Mr. Askarov. But... Uh, that that guy's got to get some stuff sorted out. He's had weight issues before this one. This is not a first time. Um, he missed weight for his fight with Joseph Benavidez. He weighed 127 for that. Um, he's also had some real lack of activity. He fought twice in 2020. Pretty good. Only fought once in 2021, and then fought over a year later in 2022. Um, he's he's been dealing with some injuries apparently, and there's a real argument that he came back against Kai Kara France a bit too soon from what he should have been. Uh, so if he's dealing with health issues, I hope he gets them sorted out. But he, he doesn't need to sort that out. So, we were down to a five-fight main card, which I think might be the ideal main card. I mean, main card distinctions in the age of, you know, entirely UFC you know, streaming platforms. I don't know that the distinction matters all that much, but that feels better. There were only 11 fights here, and um, the pacing for the main card in particular I thought was pretty darn good, especially with... Some of the time that they had to fill, but... So, anyway. That's you know, that's kind of how we arrived at the fight card we're going to talk about. Main event. Um, Alexa Grasso defeats Viviani Araujo via unanimous decision. 50-45 and then 49-46 twice. No issue with any of that. Uh, I was 50-45, but... Was it the first round? I think the first round there might be an argument for... Um, for Araujo. Um, you know what? Let me find the actual scorecards. Just in case I have to yell at somebody. Okay, yeah, one of these I um so Sal D'Amato, our resident semi sentient can of soup, gave Araujo the fourth. Which I don't agree with. And Junichimo uh, Junichiro Camijo gave uh her the third. I also don't agree with. I might be more accepting of the fourth than the, than the third. 
surprised no one gave her the first. I thought that was the probably the closest. I'm glad no one gave her the second, because the takedowns that Arujo had meant nothing. Um... So, yeah. Oh, sorry. Saldomato gave her the fourth. Camillo uh, the third. I might be more... Am I more sympathetic to the fourth than the third? Just thinking back on it, I think I am. Uh, as far as the media goes... Yeah, no one scored this for Araujo. couple of people scored it 3-2. to two. The majority are either 5-0 or 4-1. No. Um, not a terrible fight. Um, I want to say about the fight. Again, it wasn't terrible. Um, a lot of jabbing from both women. Grasso just seemed to be a little bit busier, which was uh, kind of the difference maker here. Just more activity, more efficacy, and she landed more often. Uh, I think Araujo probably had a little bit more punching power, but... Uh, once Araujo struggled to really do anything, with, she struggled to get takedowns. When she got them, she struggled to do anything with them. And if she couldn't make that work, then that was always going to be a rough night for her. Um, both women landed because neither woman has great defense. Better footwork out of Grasso, I think, played a pretty big role in this. Neither woman did a tremendous amount of kicking. Some, but not a lot. Uh, a good enough win for Grasso this Gives her, what, four in a row, I think? Um, we're going to have to wait for UFC 280 to really get some clarity about the top of women's flyweight because you've got the fight between Caitlin Chukagian and Manon Fior that's going to take place at that event. Um, and if Chukagian wins, they'll probably go with Grasso because Chukagian is... Um... She's kind of the John Fitch of flyweight. She doesn't wrestle like John Fitch did, but she just has these relatively uninteresting fights. She's good enough to win, and she's a good gatekeeper. But I heard, I think I heard Luke Thomas say this about the John Fitch road to getting a title shot. The John Fitch road to getting a title shot is you just win a lot until you can't be denied anymore. And you don't care how exciting your fights are, how much the UFC likes it, how much the fans like it. You, just, you keep winning, and you'll get there eventually. And you will, but the downside to that is, <clears throat> if you'd go that route, you only get one shot. You know, John Fitch never got all that close to another title shot after his first fight with uh, Anderson. Or not, sorry, GSP. I'm thinking about Rich Franklin, too. Now, Rich Franklin did get a second shot at Anderson, but Franklin also... He had a lot more goodwill with the UFC brass than John Fitch did. Um, but you know, Franklin also wound up in the perennial position of, I can't beat Anderson Silva, but I can beat a lot of the other guys. He was just perennial gatekeeper. Uh, Chukagian could easily fall into that role, too. Uh, the, the long and the short of that being, Chukagian's probably not getting another title shot unless she does something truly kind of exceptional. Um, if she just gets another traditional Caitlin Chukagian win, they'll go with Grosso. Uh, I think the UFC is kind of hoping Fior wins. 
you could easily, and I, I do mean easily, headline a, I don't know if you could do a full pay-per-view, but you could headline a more major fight night in France with Shevchenko and, and uh, Fjord. That's very reasonable. Uh, reasonable. Again, could you main event a pay-per-view with that? No, but you could co-main. You'd need something else to really draw in kind of the casual fans, but if you wanted to throw a title fight on, again, an ESPN card, Shevchenko versus Fjord in France, certainly, again, that certainly is doable. So, Grosso might get one. She might need one more. Again, there's a little bit of stuff up in the air for her here, but she's undefeated at flyweight. And honestly, if she doesn't get the next, if her next fight is not for the title, she's only one away. If she wins one more and that's five in a row. And in a division that shallow, you could easily put her in a title shot. Uh, other moving parts in there, but this was a solid enough performance. Not great, but her feet looked better. Her footwork looked good. She looked like she could fight five rounds without too much difficulty. Which is a big thing. Her boxing's always been pretty darn good. Bit of a headhunter. You know, her jab is really nice. I, I kind of echo some sentiments I've seen. I wish she jabbed to the body a little bit more. Because she doesn't have enough power to really kind of start you on the feet. And if you don't have that, working the body is a very viable path. Because that kind of accumulates better than head damage. For some reason. Uh, you can also time stuff to the body a little bit easier. You know, it's an easier target. But not a bad main event. Um, Araujo just looked a little bit one-dimensional. She had, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of the punching with you, but she didn't kick a lot. I think, I can't remember if it was Dominic Cruz or Paul Felder on commentary who brought it up, but one of them said, I think we're not seeing a lot of kicks because neither woman wants to give up the takedown. Grosso isn't necessarily known for her, you know, submission acumen. But she's good enough to hold top position, and I think it's a. I think if that was part of the case, and I tend to think it might have been, that's a valid fear to just give up minutes and minutes and minutes of top control time to someone who kind of knows what they're doing up there. So a lot of boxing, uh, some good enough clinch work. Um, Grosso's clinch is pretty darn good. I don't think it gets talked about enough. She's good about framing. She's good about moving herself off the fence. She's good about finding knees, especially in the clinch. She's never passive in that position. So, good win for Grasso. Uh, un, you know, a setback for Araujo, but she's young enough. And you know, women's flyweight is not exactly you know brimming. With, it's not overflowing with talent. So I imagine she'll be back in top position relatively soon. But hopefully she can use this as a learning experience. Something else that got brought up on this about her, I mentioned this in my preview, I wasn't sure her cardio would hold up. Um, Dean Thomas brought up that when you have power fighters like this, when they have these longer fights, to make sure they don't completely gas themselves out, they tend to mute themselves. You know, where normally Araujo would have a higher output or just you'd be more willing to seek the fight, fear of your cardio abandoning you uh, leads you to, again, diminish your own offensive output, and that sometimes completely mutes your entire game. Uh, there might have been a little bit of that going on here. You know, she was trying to regulate her energy, and the fight just kept getting further and further away from her. 
I don't know that she could have, you know, gotten Grasso out of there. So I, I'm not saying that I know better than her coaches about how to, you know, set these things up. I am saying I think that might be what happened. Might have been what happened. And if that's the case, maybe the calculus should change next time into going a little bit harder uh, in in different intervals instead of a just generally depressed performance. But I don't know. Again, that's going to vary fighter to fighter so wildly that I'm simply positing options. I'm not saying that you know, she should do this, but it's an idea. But she's not going to win a lot. Of, she will. Here's what I can say fairly confidently. She's not going to have a consistently winning record in five-round fights if she fights like this in five-round fights. So she's got to figure out how to do that. Whatever that happens to mean, but that is something that needs to be addressed. If she's, if you're going to be in main events, if you're going to have those extra couple of rounds, uh, she needs to figure out how she's going to win consistently under those circumstances. Your co-main event, after everything was said and done, uh, the bantamweight debut of Cub Swanson, who made weight, good for him, fought Jonathan Martinez. Martinez defeats Cub Swanson via leg kick TKO, 419 of the second round. The first round was leaning, it was going Martinez's way, uh, but Swanson was in the fight. Till we get to the last little bit when Martinez hurt Swanson, um, Hurt him with a punch initially, then as he's or an elbow, he was an elbow. Then as Swanson is backing up, Martinez fights southpaw most of the time, digs this nasty body kick kind of along the fence. Swanson drops. Martinez looks to finish. Not enough time in the in the round left though. So clear run for Martinez. Second round, Martinez slams home a couple of inside leg kicks that just. Uh, the first one lands and Cub immediately kind of goes down into a deep squat like it hits. Comes down, almost goes to a seated position, bounces back up, takes another one, same re- same reaction, goes into you know, southpaw, or go, yeah, it would have been southpaw, so it goes close stance, eats a leg, kicks him out of the lead leg. Um, our finishing sequence, there's a bit of an exchange on the, uh, after those two leg kicks, this happened in pretty rapid succession, actually. Uh, Martinez lands a front kick, and he'd been landing pretty good body kicks, but he lands a front kick here and Swanson's posture immediately changes. He immediately kind of hunches over, and that back hand, that back elbow, gets real close to the ribs. That's a guaranteed tell. If you land a body shot on somebody, and their posture changes, that's a, that's a giveaway. Uh, if that, if one of their arms, like especially where you hit, if something drops to kind of protect that, that's almost an involuntary reaction. Means you means you did the job. Means you did your job there with that shot. Uh, that kind of locks Cub up for a second. Cub tries to throw back. Can't quite find the target, and Martinez hits this just one last inside leg kick that just drops Swanson, kind of spins him around a little bit on the mat, and we're done. Uh, really good performance from Jonathan Martinez. He got hit with some punches throughout this fight again. This was not one-way traffic in the sort of traditional sense of that, but Martinez was the better fighter, and I that was fairly obvious. Um, I don't know. Martinez fights out of Factory X, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's got a f- uh, Chris Gutierrez was in his corner. I bring that up just to bring up that Mark Montoya has... I don't know how much of this is um, K- 
kicking power is a little bit like punching power. There's a lot that goes into it that's just kind of beyond your control. Uh, but Mark Montoya has several guys at a Factory X who have just sledgehammers for legs. Chris Gutierrez has some leg kick stoppages. He kicks really hard. Jonathan Martinez, we knew this before this fight. It just became very apparent in this fight. That dude kicks like a mule. I mean, just battering you on the outside with, with kicks. Uh, I don't know what Mark Montoya has as far as, you know, drilling or technique that he kind of imparts. But he's got something because he maximizes a lot of guys' kicking potential. And again, there's a degree of this that's kind of just genetic lottery, right? And Trevor Whitman is, he's told the story before about, you know, Justin Gaethje came into his, when we first started working with Gaethje. You know, Gaethje didn't know how to fight, knew how to wrestle. But even untrained, the guy was, you know, kicking holes in people. And obviously, once you refine that skill, it gets even more dangerous. But there is a degree of just you're born with it or you're not. And punching powers like that, because there's stuff that goes into punching power that you just don't have control over. You know, there's a little bit of bone density that goes into it. More than that, believe it or not, hand size. Hand size is a big thing when you figure out uh, when kind of determining punching power. You got bigger hands. Obviously, there's just more mass there being flung about. You know, Justin Gaethje's hands are very big, especially for a man his size. Uh, that's one of the things about um, the boxer. You know, he smaller guy if you look at the weight class, but the monster Naoya Inoue. That dude has big hands. Again, especially for a guy his general build, his hands are big. And he, I mean, I can't call him the most. De he's not like the hardest puncher in the sport raw. But if you go pound for pound, man, he might be. He's certainly near the top. That dude was a destroyer. When he hits you. He does it in like. Get the gloves that he did it in. But I, I was watching one of his fights. With uh, my friend Pat. Uh, who's been on the show before. And Pat mentioned like. Before the commentary brought up the same point. Like he's hurting this guy in these gloves. And he, he, I forget the name brand. But he said. Yeah, and I've punched. I've used those. They're basically pillows. And different brands of glove have different. It, there's, there's just kind of nuance to some of those, and some of them are just softer than others, and that's not a bad thing. And you know, sometimes you want those for you know, to protect your hands a little bit more for you know, bag work sometimes, or for sparring if you're going lighter. You know that there's a lot of reasons why you would go with different types of gloves, and just if you're able to generate that kind of power in like historically some of the softest gloves. And I don't mean soft like thin. I mean soft like okay, I, I don't mind getting hit by those. You got power, and Martinez has power in his kicks, man. You can see it, you can hear it. Um, big win for him. He's a very soft-spoken guy. He almost seems a little bit uh, shy once whoever's it, cause this is a this was not just this fight. This is a trend with him. Not a big talker, but big win for him. Um, I think he called anyone out. Because he usually doesn't. Um, let me double check that. I want to. I feel like there might have been somebody that he mentioned. Um, yeah, give me a sec. Let me double check. Yes, yes, he did. Because uh, yeah, Dominic Cruz was on commentary for the event. And he says, "I know Dominic Cruz is here. I'd love to have that fight." Um, Cruz was a uh, Cruz was complimentary of. Mar I mean, the guy's on the mic, so you know. 
Brandon Fitzgerald afterwards says, you know, Dominic Cruz right here, you know, what do you think? Because, of course, you're going to bring it up. Like, there's no reason not to address it. And Cruz just was very complimentary of Martinez. Uh, you know, just good on you. Keep going. Keep doing what you... He's clearly kind of sorting some stuff out about what he wants next for his career. So he wasn't he wasn't really in a position for a variety of reasons to say, yes, you know, let's do it and whatnot. But if they make that fight, be a good fight. I mean, I like Dominic Cruz a lot, but I... As hard as Martinez kicks, man, and as much as Cruz has struggled with that on occasion, depending on some other things. Uh, it's a thought. Uh, I'm very excited for what Martinez does next either way. I mean, he's he's making that transition from prospect to contender. That's a hard that's a hard bridge to cross. You know, a lot of, There's a lot of dead bodies that have tried to cross. You know, maybe the no man's land in comparison is better, so I don't mix my metaphors too much. Moving from prospect to contender, there's a big no man's land there between before you get to the next you know, series of trenches that are relative safety. Relative. There's a lot of bodies there. A lot of bodies between those two locations. Of guys who you thought were good prospects and can't miss and just never, never got there. For whatever reason. There's a lot of bodies there. And he seems to be making the move, so good for him. Uh, as for Cub Swanson, you know, what am I going to say about Cub Swanson, man? He's past his prime. He's 38. I mean, he's he's almost 39, actually. He'll be 39, yeah, not too long from here in November. Um, I mean, the guy's been fighting forever. We talked about it last week. He debuted in 2004, which is the year I graduated from high school. This guy started fighting professionally. Uh, been with the WEC slash UFC since 2007. Uh, you know, good long runs of wins, tough losses, but that dude always came to fight. He's got some good wins on his resume, too, for the record. You know, he knocked out Charles Oliveira. Um, let's have good, some of the good wins he's got. He's went over Duho Choi. I mean, that's a great fight. Um, one that stood out. I mean, that knockout of George Roop is brutal. Um, he had that win over Dustin Poirier that actually sent Poirier up from featherweight. His fight with Frankie Edgar's pretty good. He lost that one, but it's a pretty good fight. Uh, I, I, they were hyping up his win over Darren Elkins, um, which he got... December of last year. It was a fight before this one. And I just, I wanted to laugh a little bit because of how they were phrasing it. They were talking about, oh, his accuracy is great and Cub Swanson's back and, you know, the guy just, he hit Darren Elkins so much and I kind of wanted to go, you're missing the point. Like, hitting Darren Elkins isn't impressive. The man has negative defense. Like, straight up negative. I feel like he moves into strikes. What's impressive wasn't hitting Darren Elkins as much as he did. What was impressive was stopping him, because that's hard to do. Hitting Darren Elkins, anybody can do it. I, I feel pretty confident in the following. If I were to spar with Darren Elkins, one, he would beat the crap out of me. But I would hit him before he did. <laughs> like, I would, I, again, I'd get smashed, man. I'm not saying I'm a tough guy. 
I'm saying that to say that's how little his defense is. Someone with moderate, and I might even, st- I'm going to really stress moderate training, could land on him with a degree of consistency before succumbing to him being a professional and, you know, uh, his, his wrestling game and whatnot. But could I hit him if we sparred? Yes, I could. And then I'd get smashed. Again, not bragging on myself here at all. What was impressive about what Cub did wasn't that he landed, but that he finished. That was much more impressive than just landing, because everybody hits Darren Elkins. Um, I don't know if Cub's going to stick around a bantamweight or not. I He's just past his prime. He's in this weird spot where he's clearly not, you know, he's not going to make a run at the belt. He could retire. And we'd all rightly celebrate his career. I don't know that he's... I don't think his career is Hall of his career is Hall of Fame worthy. But he definitely deserves to be remembered. And, I mean, one of his fights is in the Hall of Fame. Deservedly so. Uh, he's... He could retire, but he's also still good enough to be competitive. This was a rough matchup for him. So, if he does stick around at Bantamweight... Bantamweight's hard for him. That's a deep division. But... He might be able to find a few older names at Bantamweight that he could kind of try his hand with. Um, Cub can kind of do what he wants at this point. You know, if he want if he wants to be done, okay. You know, I'll, I'll give that man his flowers all day long. If he wants to keep going, I don't think he's at a point where it's inadvisable for him to continue. That's probably closer than we think, but I I I just haven't seen him be there yet. You just have to be careful with expectations in matchmaking. But good win for Martinez. Um, Dushko D- uh, Todorovic defeats Jordan Wright via TKO. Punches and elbows uh, from the mount, basically. Was it mount? Yeah, it was mount. Uh, 3-12 of the second. Good first round for Jordan Wright. Uh, pushed things into a clinch. They fought there. He got takedowns. Good top control. A lot of mat returns. Uh, Todorovic came out after the second and fought like he normally does. So pushed close. Wright seemed to gas. You know... Pocket fighting, body shots, eventually got him down, got on top, and Wright was so gassed that full mount might as well have been death. And it was. Um, This was your fight of the night. Fair enough. Um, Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think it deserved it. You know, this wasn't one of those events where you look down the thing and go, oh, man. None of these things deserve fight of the night. Um, I think this probably got there. I mean, it clearly did for you know the people who make those decisions. Um, not a whole lot there. I mean, again, this was kind of fun, but I don't have a whole lot to go. I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, bantamweight, much needed win. Rafael Austin Sao defeats Victor Henry via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Good stuff from Austin Sao. He kind of got Henry to keep coming forward. Was able to counter him. Um, got some takedowns at points in time. A little bit of control, a little bit of ground and pound. Just very, very solid, crafty veteran outing from Austin Sow here. He needed that win bad. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what's next for him. I don't know exactly where he fits into the division. But the line on this one had Henry as a pretty big favorite. I want to say minus 400 or so. And... I get it, you know, Austin Sow had lost, what, four in a row? The 
and it was not look was it did not look like things were getting better. The only counterpoint here is you look at the level of opposition. Marlon Moraes, Corey Sandhagen, Cody Garbrandt, Ricky Simone. Now Garbrandt not exactly going the best of directions himself these days. But Simone's on the upswing, and Corey Sandhagen is one of the better, he's one of the five best bantamweights in the world, in my opinion. So there's a degree of, uh, you know, level of opposition that has to be taken into account there. But, and I I don't know that I would have bet on Austin South. I don't think I picked him. But those odds might have been a bit too wide. I'm just going to phrase it like that if you're an odds guy. Um, Henry's new enough to the UFC and whatnot that I, I don't know. I don't think we also had enough evidence of Austin South slipping quite the way that you did with like Henan Burrell. Cause I remember I picked Andre Ewell to beat Henan Burrell. Cause I just thought Burrell was done at that point. I didn't think Austin South was done and I still don't. So odds being that wide was a little bit of a surprise, but Austin South needed the win. Solid performance. Good on him. Uh, light heavyweight Alonzo Menafield knocked out Misha Sirkinov with punches, 128 of the first. Whatever. Um, it's light heavyweight. What do you want me to say? Sirkinov, <laughs> uh, hey. Remember when I mentioned that, you know, chasm of bodies that litter the, the trenches between prospect and contender? Yeah, Sirkinov's one of those guys. Um, I think technically he might have been ranked at one point, but that's a guy who, had a, who showed a lot of potential, a lot of ability, and then just never, never quite made the leap. Uh, solid win for Menafield, but I don't have a whole lot to add here. That was your main card for the prelims. Mana Martinez defeated Brandon Davis via split decision. The split surprised me here. Um, don't quite know how you got two rounds for Davis. Uh, not a bad little fight, though. Uh, middleweight. This one a little bit surprised me, actually. Um, Jacob Malkoon defeats Nick Maximo via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Uh, the determining factor here seemed to be that Maximov... Do we have an update on this thing? Let me see if there's an update on his condition, because he got hurt in this. Okay, I don't think we have a specific update. Uh, as far as the injury, but there was a clearly, there was clearly an injury to his right leg. Um, in the, it, sometime in the first round, it happened. Um, he started grimacing in pain as he was walking around. He survived the round. He got out wrestled. Um, between rounds, he told his corner, he told his corner, my knee popped. Uh, his corner told him to get suck it up and get back out there. I think I believe part of the inspirational line was you're from Stockton, right? He is. He fights out of the Nick Diaz Academy, I believe, but inadvisable. Inadvisable. He goes back out, gets out wrestled again. I mean, he he could not defend a single leg. And you can't if one of your if you've got a compromised knee to that degree. And if it popped the way he kind of describes, that's probably some kind of a ligament issue. My hunch. Um, I, I couldn't tell you which one, but that, that would be my hunch. All you have to do is grab the good leg, force them to try and put all of their weight on the bad leg, and then just, you know, a little bit of an inside trip. And Malcoon's good at that takedown anyway. Uh, just easy, easy work. 
getting that takedown. I mean, uh, Maximov couldn't even close guard. Like, when he had full guard, could not close it properly because his right knee was so messed up. Uh, his corner talked to him about stopping it between rounds two and three. They said, I need to see more from you or I'm just going to throw on the towel. I don't know what more they saw in the third, but it was apparently enough. Dude, I've said this before, man. MMA corners are just never, they're never going to stop a fight. I can probably count on one hand the number of times I can recall a fight being stopped by the corner. Um, they, they don't do it. And they're not going to until something really bad happens. That's just how it is. Um, yeah, Maximo, he wasn't even in the ring when they read the scores. Like, he got, he was badly limping and very obviously in a lot of pain. But good win for Malkoon, who's not going to win too many popularity contests, but he's a pretty solid wrestler, and he's a determined guy. He trains with, he's, he's like primary training partners with Robert Whitaker. So, uh, solid win. Solid win for Malkoon. Uh, featherweight, Joanderson Brito defeated Lucas Alexander via rear naked choke, 202 of the first. Brito's pretty legit. Um, he got right after Alexander, got the back standing, hit some mat returns before jumping for the back, fighting for the choke. You know, just really good stuff out of Brito here. Women's straw weight, Piero Rodriguez defeated Sam Hughes via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. I believe first two for Rodriguez, last one for Hughes. Um, not a lot here. Hughes struggled to really kind of maintain consistent offensive output. Rodriguez was the heavier-handed fighter. Um, she gassed, but Hughes never really was able to capitalize on it. So, um, yeah. Let's see, Tatsuro Taira, Taira defeated CJ Vergara via armbar 419 of the second. I told you guys when Tyra debuted that I was a little bit high on him. I liked what I'd seen out of him. He had a pretty good record. I mean, it was smaller promotional work, but undefeated, pretty talented guy, and plenty of people who knew a lot more than I do were telling us all, you know, watch this guy. He looked good here. Um, won the first round without too much difficulty. Second round, gets another takedown, gets the back. Uh, can't quite find the choke, and ultimately decides it's better to go for the armbar, which he gets. Armbars from the back are criminally underused in MMA. Fighters are terrified of losing the position. And I'm not even saying that's an unfounded fear, for the record. But that is an, that's an offensive weapon that you need to have in your arsenal. Otherwise, you got nothing. If somebody's good at hand fighting, and you're on their back... Congratulations, you're not doing anything. Having a secondary point of attack like that is a very useful thing to have in your offensive repertoire. Um, and being later in the round, I'm sure contributed to it. Like, okay, if I lose position, I've still won the round. Fair enough. That's a legitimate consideration. Um, but he... Really nice armbar, man. Tyra is... He's legit. After the fight, he said he wants to be the first Japanese UFC champion which he would be if he's able to get there. And flyweight, again, is he going to do that this year, you know, within the next, in the, call it 18 months. Is he going to do that by 2024? 
He, let me put it this way. He won't do it in 2023. I feel pretty confident about that. But so we're looking at, you know, another 18 months or so would be my guess. Before he's like, there's no neat reason to rush this guy. He's got ability. Let's let him develop. And But he might be able to do it, for the record. And kicking everything off, Pete Rodriguez knocked out Mike Jackson, knocked him out of the UFC, would be my guess, with a brutal knee against the fence, uh, as expected. I mean, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and completely clown on Mike Jackson, um, but his tenure in the UFC lasted at least two fights more than it should have. Let me just put it that way. Um. Yeah, Rodriguez just battered him, got him against the fence. Jackson was trying to weave under hooks, which is not a bad idea. It's a good thing. In fact, have a, it's a good skill to possess if you can kind of get under them. But you've got to be careful changing your levels like that consistently, especially when knees get involved. And Rodriguez got him ducking and just crushed him with a knee. Br- a pretty, pretty brutal knockout. Uh, yeah, that was that was the card. Your bonuses, I mentioned fight of the night, was Todorovic and Wright. Performances went to Jonathan Martinez and Tatsuro Taira. No real argument with that. Rodriguez might have been a little bit hard done there. Um, Because he... I mean... Again. this, This preference that comes into this, but... And level of opposition might have been part of this factor, I don't know. But if there's someone who you might have said, you know, maybe maybe could have deserved it, um, Rodriguez would have been the next guy, I think. Yeah, over over Manafield because Rodriguez's win was prettier. Sue me. So that was the event. If you want my full report, it is in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. That includes my round-by-round scoring and clips of the finishes when I can find them. So give that a read if you're so inclined. All right, uh, let's talk boxing. Boxing had a pretty big weekend, actually. There were several events that went on Saturday. Um, Clarissa Shields got a win over... Oh, what's her face? Hang on, let me find the name. Uh, Savannah Marshall. Now, did she beat Savannah Marshall? Um, on that same card, that fight was supposed to take place... Um, how long ago? It was supposed to happen like the week the Queen of England died. It was going to take place in the UK because um, uh, Michelle, uh, Marshall rather, excuse me, is British. British? Some variety. Yeah, British. Um, So that got pushed back because the Queen died. So... But she wins a pretty clear-cut unanimous decision. Did Shields, uh, not a terrible fight. Slightly better fight. Same card. Um, Michaela Mayer defeated... uh, Alicia Baumgartner. Split decision. This was a fun little fight. Um, Wait, sorry. Mayer lost. Got that backwards. Mayor was the one who threw a fit about it. Um, Baumgartner, again, wins a split decision. I'm okay. You can argue either way. I have no issues with Baumgartner winning. I kind of... I kind of favored her, personally. Um, 
here's the big thing that you need to take away from this, everybody. Dear boxing commissions, stop with this two-minute round nonsense for female boxers. Stop it. There's no reason for it. None. Absolutely none. I don't know why you do this. I don't know why you think this is a good idea. It's not. Stop it. Give them three-minute rounds. There's no reason not to. Absolutely no reason. Here's the only reason you haven't done it. The inertia of your existence. Changing rules in boxing is like pulling teeth. And if you've ever tried to get a dentist to actually pull your teeth, that's like pulling teeth. Dentists don't like doing it. I don't know why, but they don't. Actually, I do know why, but my cynical take on that can wait. Uh, there's no reason for female boxers to be fighting for two minutes around. None. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Give them three minutes around. Nothing bad will happen. I promise. If female MMA fighters can fight for five minutes around just like the guys, there's no reason female boxers can't fight for three minutes around just like the guys. This is stupid. Stop it. Um, also on the boxing side of things, slightly more relevant to the general boxing discussion. Um, Devin Haney fought in his mandatory rematch with George Cambosos Jr. Um, he came, went to Australia, beat Cambosos to become the undisputed lightweight champion. He has all four belts, unified undisputed. You, you have to use different terminology in boxing. Because unified is all, if you have more than one, you're unified. So, he's got all four belts now. Um, when he beat uh, Cambosos, the thing to get that fight, he had to agree to an immediate rematch once again in Australia if he won. So, we got that. There was no buzz for this fight. Um, these two guys, man, uh, they booked this rematch pretty quick. Their fight was, what, four months ago? Something like that. It was this year. Um, Haney looked rough at the weigh-ins. Like, I don't know if he's going to... He's as young as he is. He's in his 20s, early 20s. Like 135 was never going to be his permanent home. But... He can't fight 135 on, a, on this schedule. Like he, his body just needs time to recover. Um, so I don't know if he's moving up next. He will at some point, I'm sure, move to 140. But at the moment, 135 is still kind of... He's the king. Whether or not he chooses to move up or fight Vasily Lomachenko remains to be seen. But his two options now at 135 are Lomachenko or Shakur Stevenson. So. But the fight itself, I'll give away the ending. Yeah, he wins a unanimous decision. The most you can give Cambosis, and two judges did this, by the way. The most you could give Cambosis is two rounds. Thought Cambosis had the first. He came out doing a lot of stance switching, which I don't think Haney was ready for. Made it more of a fight. And Haney, Haney's style of boxing is the kind where he doesn't seem to hate punting the first round or so. As long as he gets what he needs out of it to be successful for the rest of the fight. And you could argue the 12th for Cambosos. I would have still given the 12th to Haney, but the 12th you can argue. That's it. Um, Haney won the rest of the rounds. Once Haney got a read on the timing of Cambosos, he started punching him in the face a lot. His right hand was money. 
more than his jab, even the right hand was kind of the story of this fight, although he did jab a great deal at Cambosos as well. Uh, he cut Cambosos up. He got cut a little bit. Um, the ninth round, I think Cambosos had some pretty good flurries. But Haney just really good. He wanted Haney wanted the finish here. Couldn't get it, but he wanted it. Um, you know, Haney, this has to this has to be part of the discussion coming out of this fight. Not a big puncher. He landed cleanly on Cambosos a lot in this fight. And if he had more power, he would have got the finish he wanted. Not a big power puncher, something to keep in mind. I'm not saying he's got full-on pillow fists. I think that would be a disservice to the man. But if your landing as often as he was and you're not getting knockdowns, forget stoppages. If you can't even knock the guy down when you hit this many clean punches, um, you got a pro- you know, there's a punching power issue there. There just is. Now, it's not the end of the world, but it's something to acknowledge. I mean, he shut Cambosos down. There were... I think Cambosos only landed double-digit punches in two of the 12 rounds. I mean, think about that for just a second. You got three minutes of boxing. And for 10 rounds, he could never put together in a three-minute segment 10 punches that landed. Uh, wild. Devin Haney's good. People are gonna people overlook him because he's not flashy and he's a touch chinny. He got buzzed a few times in this fight. Not enough to steal the rounds for uh, Cambosos, but if you know what to look for, again, you kind of know. Again, he felt that one. Uh, but he's very good. I don't know that I would favor him. I would favor Lomachenko to beat him. I think the footwork's is too much of a problem for Haney. Um, and I think Lomachenko's great, obviously. I don't know about Shakur Stevenson, though. That's a tough one. Uh, but if he wants to stick around at 135, I think those are the two fights that are going to be tossed about. He's going to move up at some point again. The only question is when exactly. But for now, Devin Haney, man at 135. Um, had a good Again, he had a good fight here. Fought really well. Fought really well. Our other big boxing fight was the return of Deontay Wilder. Who knocked out Robert Hellenius in the first round. Um, Wilder was light for this fight. He weighed 214 pounds. I mean, he's 6'7". And he weighs less than I do. I mean, I'm not fat. Uh, I've lost a fair bit of weight, actually. I'm... I'm rather proud of that. Um, yeah, I'm actually buying large clothes instead of extra large in some respects for the first time in about a decade. But I, I think I've told you guys this before. My general assumption at the moment is 218 plus or minus 3. 3? Yeah, 218 plus or minus. If I want to be more generous, like 218 plus or minus 5 is kind of where I believe my weight is. Once I got, I, I stopped weighing myself like two years ago, two or three, when I got my weight from like 240 to, I'm 240, man. When I got down to about, when I got consistently down to around the 220 mark, I stopped weighing myself because the number on the scale no longer bothered me. And I don't need to weigh myself 
constantly if I don't care what my weight is at this point. And once I got back to the, that other kind of benchmark, I was fine with it. Though I don't know what I weigh at the moment. Again, I kind of... 218, you give me plus or minus 5, I'll probably be right. But yeah, he's... You're more likely to be plus 5 than minus 5. Like plus... 218, like plus 5, minus 3, probably. But yeah, Wilder weighing less than I do. And just kind of got Hellenius to charge in on him, caught him with a right hand, and bad knockout, man. Hellenius was sleeping with his eyes open. Just boom. Uh, Wilder... Wilder hits really hard, man. He just does. Um, I don't know that he's the hardest puncher ever in boxing. I don't even necessarily know that he's the hardest puncher in the heavyweight division right now. But if he's not, he's one of them. Um, again, I'm going to reference my friend Pat, who, ahead of the first fight between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, mentioned that he thought Wilder's power was overstated. Not not existent, overstated. And those are two very different things. And with the benefit of more time, I think he might be right. Look, Hellenius was almost, is like 40, was enjoying a bit of a career resurgence lately, but over the, again, older, and got a little bit aggressive as Wilder, dude, if Wilder could actually box, man, he's got, uh, again, where, where you rank his power historically or whatnot is entirely up to you. If he could actually box in addition to having that kind of power, um, uh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> like he'd be, he'd be, he might legitimately be unstoppable. But his actual boxing has always been a weakness. Uh, it just is. Didn't bite him here. But uh, again, brutal knockout. He said after the fight, you know, there's Alexander Usyk or Andy or Andy Ruiz, who are both possibilities. My hunch would be Ruiz. Um. I to mention Joshua as well. I, I forget exactly what Ruiz is up to. He's got a man. He's got a challenger coming up, um, and he might have to take a mandatory. Tyson Fury's already beaten Wilder three times, twice, twice. Put air quotes around that. So, while uh, Fury's a little bit out of the question, I mean Fury's mucking around with. I don't know what he's doing. Um. Fighting Derek Chisora again. Ugh, just, just a giant waste of everyone's time. But I imagine that Ruiz and Wilder is kind of the fight that's probably going to come up next. And I I don't hate that fight, for the record. So that's uh, That was some boxing results, so I figured I'd talk about those because I want to. Uh, yeah. All right, let's... Let's move on to probably the main reason you guys are here, and if that's true, I apologize for uh, taking this long to get to it, but, well, it was a whole week to talk about, so. All right, UFC 280 coming your way this Saturday, special earlier start time. I believe the main card will start at 2 p.m. Eastern. The main card starts noon my time. Prelims, oh, God, that's going to suck. Blooms are going to be at like 8. 
Oh, dang it. I hate waking up that early. I know, I know, I know, you UK fans. Like, you don't want to hear about me whining about having to wake up earlier in the morning once in a blue moon, but... How many of you are watching the prelims, just for the record? I'm just throwing that out there. So I'm... Yeah, yeah. And it's also my time zone, you know? If I lived on the East Coast, that wouldn't be as big a deal. But I don't. I live Mountain Standard Time, so... Yeah. yeah. Anywho, main event. I do not have a good read on this fight, just for the record. Uh, for the vacant lightweight title, Charles Oliveira, the most recent former champion, against Islam Makashev. I don't know about this one. Here's a couple of things that I think we need to keep in mind for this fight. Um, the pace is going to be a the pace is going to be a big key here. Charles Oliveira fights at a breakneck pace because he's confident that if you fight him on those terms, he will find openings that he can capitalize on technically. And he's aggressive. The last few fights, he's been very aggressive. And he's made guys make mistakes. He's not as good on the back foot. I think he's realized that. I think that's why he's as aggressive as he is. He's not that good on the counter, and he's not that good backing up. He's still, uh, to be clear, like he's still dangerous, but that is not where he excels. Um, so that's something to pay attention to. The slower the pace, the more it probably favors Makashev. He's a bit more thoughtful of a fighter. Likes more control, likes more methodical. One, here's an interesting observation about Oliveira. The, the man does have the most submission wins in UFC history. But, do you happen to know how many of those submissions he got from the guard? I don't mean that finished in the guard, because he has... He has started a submission on the feet, like his guillotines in particular. He'll start there and then wind up in the guard. I mean, submissions that start in the guard and then kind of end from there. Because I know the answer to this. It's only two. Um, his armbar of Darren Elkins, which was his UFC debut. That was 12 years ago. And his win over Andy Ogle. I'm very... I don't mean to imply that Charles Oliveira's jiu-jitsu is not dangerous with what I'm about to say. Please don't misunderstand me. I think his jiu-jitsu is very good. Very, very good for MMA. I think the fear around his guard might be oversold. People treat his guard like it's Chernobyl. And it's, I don't think it's Chernobyl. Look, could he turn me into a pretzel from his back? Yes. Michael Chandler didn't have too many problems in his guard. Nearly finished him. Uh, Paul Felder had to navigate some Darce choke attempts early in the first round, but rewatch that fight, man. Felder gets on top and elbows him through the mat from guard. 
or half guard at the finish, I believe. You know, so my point here is like guys like Dustin Poirier or uh, Justin Gagey who dropped him and then just no, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight in your guard. Poirier maybe should have gone to his guard. Poirier's a very good black belt. Um, you know, Gagey's considerations might be different because I know he's he's openly talked about you not being a big jujitsu guy. So that consideration might be different. Again, there's there's always variables, but Oliveira's guard might not be as again. Is it something you have to take seriously? Yes, you can't be sloppy, but it's not Chernobyl. You know, it's not like if I spend any time here, I'm going to die. I think Makashev's going to take him down, and I. I'm curious to see what that looks like. The transition game is key. That's where Oliveira really excels. He transitions very well, and he finds openings. But I don't think... I think if Makashev gets on top in his guard, I think he'll be okay. If he gets to half guard, I think he'll be really okay. Might be, it might even be ideal for him. That affords him plenty of control, limits his uh, his weak, his vulnerabilities, you know, the opportunities for offense. And Makashev's grappling is quite good. I don't know that he'll submit Oliveira. He might. Oliveira's been tapped out before. People forget this. But, um, I mean, Ricardo Lamas just caught a guillotine on him on the ground. Uh, Pettis guillotined him. That had some damage to the body to set it up. But he's been tapped. Not recently, but it has happened. Miller caught him with a knee bar years ago. So, I wouldn't be shocked. Here's the other thing about this. There's no outcome for this fight that you can say that would surprise me. Oliveira early stoppage with strikes. Wouldn't surprise me. Oliveira submission. Wouldn't surprise me. Makashev stoppage with strikes. Would not surprise me. Makashev by submission. Would not surprise me. Either guy by decision. Doesn't surprise me. I would say a decision is more likely to go to Makashev. The longer this fight goes, the more I think it favors Makashev. I might be wrong about that, but that's my hunch. Um, I don't think the pace at which Oliveira fights is sustainable for five rounds. Mostly because he fights at a pretty bonkers pace. But that I that's a hunch I've got. I think if you can survive the onslaught, and it is an onslaught, and and some of the very best guys in the world have not been able to do this, but I don't know that he can carry that same style all five rounds. It's a big ask. And I think Mikashev's style is built to go long. Um, so the pace is going to be a big key for me here. The, the more methodical and the longer it goes, the more I think Makashev will be winning. But Oliveira is very, very dangerous. He's got good power. He's got a nasty clinch game. He's developed that recently. Just will chew you up with knees. Again, he's inviting you for takedowns, and I think Makashev will oblige him if given the opportunity. Um... Uh, the clinch will be interesting to me because Oliveira likes to operate out of more of a, a the double collar tie, right? Whereas Makashev is more of a Greco-Roman kind of chest-to-chest guy. Or you can call it Sambo, call it whatever you want to call it. 
but he does more upper body stuff than kind of the tie fighting for the neck control. And that's a that's a like age old fight. Like which of these is better and who can make it work more for them in whatever way you want to kind of spin that. So I I don't have a good read on this fight, guys. I, I don't know what else to tell you. This could go either way. I would not bet anything on this fight. I'm going to lean towards Makashev just a little bit. For a pretty simple reason. Uh, again, not going to be surprised if Oliveira wins. I lean ever so slightly. Oliveira hasn't faced a strong wrestler in a while. Probably since the Kevin Lee fight. And... Lee took that first round from Oliveira, if memory serves. I have to double-check that, but... And Oliveira, again, dealt with that very well and started to show the form that would lead him onto this run he's on, which is a... His run right now is one of the all-timers. Like, I don't know exactly where you want to put it, but it's really good. I mean, he's beaten... What is it? Kevin Lee, Tony Fer... Let me look it up. I want to say it's like Kevin Lee, Tony Ferguson... I'm going to look up the, the ones that matter, because he, you know, oh, he beat Clay Guida and Christos Yagos and Jim Miller in 2018 and David Tamer. Like, I'm, I'm not saying those don't matter, because they matter to get him to where he is, but... Yeah. Kevin Lee, Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler, Dustin Poirier, Justin Gagey, and he finished... Couldn't finish Tony. Let me see if he did not finish Tony Ferguson. Almost finished him with that armbar in the first round. I still don't know how Tony didn't tap. But he finished Lee, Chandler, Poirier, and Gagey. That's that's a heck of a thing. It's a heck of a run. If you take his overall win streak, again, it's what? Ten fights? Hang on, so. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, Guida, Yagos, Miller, Tamer, Nick Lentz, Jared Gordon, Kevin Lee, Ferguson, Chandler, Poirier. Yeah. That's a heck of a run. Makashev, by contrast, through through no fault of his own, in some respects, has not had a great win over a really ranked guy. Now, again, some of this is not his fault. You know, when he ran, he beat Tiago Moises, who was ranked, I believe. He beat Dan Hooker, who was ranked, and he kind of ran over Hooker. If you'll recall, the Bobby Green fight, which was his most recent win, uh, was February of this year. That was not supposed to be Bobby Green. That was supposed to be Benil Dariush. Uh, who is a highly ranked... Who's another? Who's a ranked fighter, and I think is rather highly ranked. In fact, he's on this card. Um, would have been a great fight. I'm so sad that fight fell through. So he's, he's signed to fight some top guys, and it just hasn't quite materialized. Um, but I... I don't know how Oliveira is going to deal with a consistent wrestling attack. I think he's operating under the assumption that his his jiu-jitsu game will counteract it. And I'm not certain that it will. I might be wrong about that, but that's, again, that's kind of a hunch. I also, again, I question Oliveira's conditioning given the pace at which he likes to fight over five rounds. I think that's a big question mark. Might not matter. Might end early. And we might still have that big question mark. But I, my hunch is that his style 
if he can't get control positions throughout the course of a round uh, and kind of reload, I don't know how sustainable it is. Look what happens when he, um, I mean, when he fought, uh, the Poria fight's a good example of this. He fought like a bat out of hell for the first couple, for the first round. Dropped the first round, I thought. But second round, again, they're both swinging hell for leather. He gets a takedown and he kind of just rides out the round on top. He's doing good work and he's landing elbows. He's still doing stuff. I don't mean to say this is lay and pray, but. He's not quite, you know, again, in the frantic energy expenditure that he is on the feet. If he has to fight stand-up for five rounds, I don't know that, again, I don't know that what he does is sustainable. So I, I'm going to lean ever so slightly to Makashev, but I have no idea. Like, that's that's just a prediction. That's a pick because it's kind of what I do here, but I don't know. It's a really good fight. It's a really good fight. Another fight I'm not quite sure on, um, in a lot of ways, actually. Your co-main event for the bantamweight title, champion Aljamain Sterling defends against former champion TJ Dillashaw. Dillashaw is trying to become a three-time bantamweight champion. If you'll recall, he won the vacant... Is it the vacant belt? No, he beat Henan Burrell when Burrell was promoted from interim champion. Lost it to Dominic Cruz. Regained it from Cody Garbrandt and then was stripped of the title after failing that uh, drug test when he cut down to flyweight and was stopped by Henry Cejudo. So, did not lose the title the second time. It was taken from him. His own fault. And just for the record, his own fault. I'm saying nobody beat him for it. I am, I'm torn on this one because I can see the arguments for either guy. Oh, for the record, the, uh, like the pre-fight hype package that they sh- they showed the, um, you know, kind of, the, again, they're kind of their hype job for this fight on the card last night. Sterling and Dillashaw might be the two least likable guys in a <laughs> title fight in a long time. I mean, you've got Sterling kind of palling around in Abu Dhabi taking pictures with Andrew Tate, that. That waste of space. Um, I don't even. Want, I'm not even going to give that guy airtime beyond beyond noting that. And then you've got Dillashaw, who's just, you know, Dillashaw, much like Conor McGregor, desperately wishes he were six feet tall. Just desperately. Of course, if Dillashaw were six feet tall, he'd He'd be like the biggest jackass in the world. Certainly one of them. Um, so, very unlikable personalities. <laughs> this was the point there. Very, very, very good fighters, though. I didn't think Dillashaw beat Corey Sandhagen in their fight, for the record. I scored that for Sandhagen. I don't think scoring it for Dillashaw is... It's not egregious, but I disagreed. So he's getting this a little bit, I mean, he's getting this based off of never having lost the title and a win that's a little over a year old and, oh man, the injuries. I mean, this guy's dealt with a metric ton of injuries. 
um, during his during his uh, suspension, like he had, I think he had both shoulders operated on and might have had one knee. Then he had the knee surgery after the fight with Sterl uh, with Sandhagen when Sandhagen hit a heel hook that tore something in his knee. I forget exactly what, but something. Here's the problem, I think, for Sterling. Logically, this should be Aljamain Sterling, right? He's the younger fighter. He's on the better run. Dillashaw's, again, older. He looked a step slower in the Sandhagen fight. Some of Dillashaw's style has kind of been figured out at this point, like the game has caught up to him. Whether it's surpassed him or not remains to be seen, but he's not operating at the cutting edge anymore, necessarily. Here's the problem with Sterling. As far as this matchup goes. Right? Sterling's striking game from the outside is okay. But it's a lot of single shot. He fights long. He's, he's a very lanky guy for the division. And he has learned how to use that to his credit. But it's a lot of single shots. And he's not comfortable in exchanges. Dillashaw is. And that's a big consideration. I think Dillashaw being slowed down a little bit will help Sterling in this case, but it's again, it's still a consideration. Sterling's bread and butter is not his striking, it's his grappling, and it's specifically his ability to get the back, because he is very good at it. If you... Whatever you think about how the fight with... Um, his most recent fight with Jan was scored, and I believe doing it live, I scored it for Jan, but I don't know, that might have been... I'm not sure that that was correct. I'm pretty sure it was wrong. Um, Rewatching that fight, I've, I'm much more like, yeah, Sterling probably won that. I understand the argument for Jan, I do, but I, I don't think it's correct anymore. But watch some of the back takes that Sterling hits in that fight. They are, they're brilliant. Because Sterling is doing something that a lot of other guys are getting a little bit hip to, especially guys who operate more in the Khabib meta. They're not looking to take you down and advance position in the traditional sense of the word. Sterling, in particular, is only looking for you to expose your back and give him an opportunity to take it. And that's very, very different from how a lot of guys operate. That's what Sterling likes to do, and he is very good at it. His back control when he gets there is exceptional. It's very hard to get him off. He's not always the most... I'm going to phrase this carefully because he does kind of what I mentioned a little bit earlier. He will not give up that position. You could hang your arm out there for him to take and he is not going to take it. He's not going to take the chance. He'll just keep trying to choke you. And if that means he just wins the round, then fine, he just wins the round. His ground and pound isn't anything to write home about, but it's not terrible, especially if he can kind of belly you down. He can do some good work from there. But TJ Dillashaw is hard to get down. Not impossible, hard. Dillashaw's stance is a very awkward stance. It's almost like a, what I heard refer, I referred to as kind of like a monkey stance. Where his base is a little bit wide, his hips are back, and he kind of leans forward at the waist and presents his head as kind of a target. And you can get away with that when your reactions are good. And it's also... A, like, that stance is a very is very similar to a traditional re amateur wrestling stance. He's just not giving you a lot of options for takedowns. 
It also lets them kind of explode through to surprise you with head kicks and whatnot, but again, just kind of as a by the by. So, if. Let me put it like this. If Sterling can't get takedowns or some kind of control position, I don't know that he can win this fight. If they, if he just has to try and strike it out with TJ, I don't think he wins. But the time off, and this is this is going to be Dillashaw's just second fight in like three and a half years. That inactivity is a big consideration. I will not be surprised if Dillashaw wins because I think what he does presents problems specifically for Aljamain Sterling. The length is going to be a problem for Dillashaw to overcome. He has struggled with that a lot, especially guys who know how to manage range. If you can manage the range on him, he struggles. And he whiffs a lot. Again, you look at guys who know distance management. You know, Dominic Cruz made him miss a lot. Heck, the first round of their first fight, Cody Garbrandt makes him miss a lot. He was diligent about that and kind of made it work for him in the as the second round of that uh, Garbrandt fight came about. But and credit to him for that, you know, he was not discouraged by missing a lot. But if he doesn't have either a good read on you or a better ability to kind of cheat distance or get you, you'll get you miss miss timing it, miss ranging it. He struggles. Sandhagen did that a lot to him. Sandhagen did that a lot by, not just at distance, but kind of by crashing distance pretty constantly and just keeping a ridiculous pace on him. Sterling doesn't have the highest pace, but the range, again, the ranginess is a problem. And it doesn't take Sterling long, man, to get your back. Doesn't mean he's going to finish you from there, but he can get it. So... I think ultimately I'm going to pick Sterling, but I'm not going to be surprised if, just stylistically, man, TJ offers him problems. Um, so, just, just paying attention to that one. All right, bantamweights, sticking with the bantamweight division. Former champion and number one contender by the rankings, Piotr Jan, will fight the 13th ranked contender, Sean O'Malley. Um... Sean O'Malley has stumbled pretty visibly every time he's fought someone who's really good. Marlon Vera did a number on him, and he handled that badly, and he still in, is in denial about it, but Vera handled him, because Cheeto's very good. Pedro Munoz was disarming him. Um, I'm not saying O'Malley had zero success in that fight, but... Look at what Munoz was doing, and look at how ineffective most of O'Malley's offense was because of what Munoz was doing. And then we've got Piotr Jan, who might still be the best bantamweight in the world. There's the argu- There's an argument there. The range will again be a hurdle he has to overcome. There's a couple of things here. One, O'Malley's a headhunter. And Jan is very good about defense with his head he's more open to the body but again O'Malley not doesn't go much to the body O'Malley shows kicks but he's he shows kicks in the way people think Conor McGregor would show kicks McGregor was actually kicks were an integral part of Conor McGregor's game on his rise believe it or not 
Rewatch his fights, his early fights in the UFC. His kicking game was very important for setting up his punches. Uh, in fact, it was vital. Anytime, watch the Diaz, the second Diaz fight in particular. You can see this. You can set your watch to it. Every time Connor is using kicks to set up what he does, he's winning. Every time he stops kicking and just boxes with Nate, he loses. He loses those exchanges, every one of them. When he kicks to steer you and to set you up, he was successful. When he didn't, not so much. O'Malley shows kicks to show kicks. He doesn't really build off of them or steer you with them the way that you need to. Um, he's susceptible to leg kicks. I don't think I don't think he's frail in the sense that, oh no, he breaks every time you touch him. He's not that. But his style is susceptible to being kicked and disrupted in that way. And even people he has beaten have disrupted him with leg kicks. I, I just don't think he has a good answer for it. I think his defense is a bit of a problem. He tends to rely on his length. And that's a bad thing to rely on against Dion, who's pretty good about getting inside. I I need a concrete reason to pick against Piotr Jan. And I don't think Sean O'Malley offers it. Is it possible for Sean O'Malley to win this fight? Yes. It is possible. It is unlikely. My judgment. So, picking Jan. Lightweights. Great fight here. Benil Daryush and Mateusz Gamrot. Um, poor Daryush, man. That dude hasn't lost a fight since 2018. Uh, he has beaten since then Tiago Moises, Drew Dober, Frank Camacho, Dracar Close, Scott Holtzman, Diego Fajaya, and Tony Ferguson. And if you'll recall some of those, some of those are wars. Like that fight with Dracar Close, that's a war. He... He was in the firefight with Scott Holtzman for as long as that lasted. He kind of he kind of wrecked Tony on the ground. Uh, dude's on a good run. He should be in the title picture, and he's constantly forgotten about. Mateusz Gamrot. That guy lost his UFC debut. A tough split decision to Guram Kuta Deladze. Since then, finished Scott Holtzman, finished Jeremy Stevens, finished... Diego Fajaya, and in his last fight, had a great fight. If you haven't seen this fight with Armin Saryukian, amazing grappling and scrambling between those two. Amazing wrestling. This is a heck of a fight. This is a heck of a fight. I'm going to lean towards Darius just a bit. I don't... Again, just a hair, but don't miss this fight. You could main event any fight night in the world with this fight, and you'd be very happy. It's a great fight for lightweight. And kicking off the pay-per-view card, we have at women's flyweight, Caitlin Chukagian and Manon Fior. I've said my piece about Caitlin Chukagian plenty of times. She's on a four-fight winning streak. I wasn't sure she beat Amanda Hebos her last fight out, but eh. Um, Fior has looked really good in the UFC, but has also shown some of the same problems that most female fighters seem to show for whatever reason. I'm going to pick Fior here just because, because I can. Um, 
I'm very prepared to be wrong about this one, by the way. Caitlin Chukagian doesn't lose very often. She's just hard to beat. But I think Fjord will engage her in that kind of long-range kickboxing while we ki and do kind of shadow boxing stuff that Chukagian mostly does. Uh, I think Fjord might have an advantage there, actually, because of some of the weapons she uses relative to Chukagian. Um... I would not have opened the card with this one, for the record. Um, I would have swapped this in the next fight we're going to talk about, personally. But I'm going to pick Fior, and it's a bit speculative. I uh, could be very, very wrong, but I... And if again, if Fior wins, I think she'll be the next title challenger. I think that's what the UFC kind of wants to do. Whereas if Chukagian wins, it's prob they might try to do Grasso. Um, because... Who want? Seriously... Anybody out there, do you really want to see Caitlin Chukagian versus Valentina Shevchenko again? Are there any unanswered questions from their first fight? I don't have any. Um, but if she wins five in a row, if put it this way. If Chukagian gets a stoppage, that will help her cause immensely. But she doesn't finish people. Has she got a single finish win in the UFC? I have to, I have to look at this now. Because this amuses me. No, she does not. Her UFC wins. She came in, beats Lauren Murphy by decision, loses to Carmouche by decision, beats Irene Aldana by decision. I'm sure I agree with that one. Beats Mauro Barella and Alexis Davis both by decision, loses a split decision to Jessica I. LOL. Beats, Jessica, beats Joanne Calderwood, beats Jennifer Maya both by decision. That gets her a title shot. Where she is finished by Valentina Shevchenko. She beats Antonina Shevchenko by decision. Gets stopped by Jessica Andrade in that fight in the first round. Andrade took her soul with body shots. Then her current four-fight winning streak. Cynthia Calvillo, Viviani Araujo, Jennifer Maya, and Amanda Hibas. All decision. And she, she has got two finishes in her entire career. One was in her second ever fight. And the other one was... Um, against someone without a Wikipedia entry in 45 seconds. So, if she gets a finish, that will help her cause immensely. I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, picking fewer there, it'll be what it is. All right. Um, prelims. Good fight here. Below Muhammad and Sean Brady, you have two guys who are kind of doing the John Fitch thing. And in this case, the style, I do mean the stylistically. Bilal Muhammad is on a very good winning streak, and he gets slept on a lot. He hasn't lost a fight since he fought Jeff Neal in 2019. He is unbeaten in his last nine fights. One, two, three, four, six, six. Okay, eight. Um, included in there is a no contest with Leon Edwards from March of last year that he would have lost. And I don't say that because Edwards is the champion now. I say that because... Rewatch the first round of that fight. That's not only... like Leon doesn't only win that round. It's not especially close. That fight was not going below Muhammad's way at all. Um, I don't think he was looking for a way out when he, says he, when he said he couldn't see after that. Look, you got eye-poked, man. Leon Edwards didn't want that to hang over the... to have a no contest there. He shouldn't have fouled him. Straight up. But I do think that fight was not going to go his way. Um, but he's on a good streak. He's just... Uh, I, look, 
if you think his fights aren't terribly compelling, I don't blame you. I don't find them terribly compelling, to be quite honest. But he's tough, and he knows how to win fights, and that matters. That is a lot. He's fighting one of the rising forces in the division in Sean Brady. Brady is undefeated, 15-0. Had some setbacks against Michael Chiesa a little bit. Uh, and again, still won the fight, but uh, struggled a bit in the striking there. This is a, this is a very good fight. This is going to come down to, I think, who controls the takedowns. Because both guys prefer to fight there. Um, Muhammad is the better striker. He might catch Brady there, but I think he, I think this is going to be whoever grinds this one out. I am going to lean towards Brady just a little bit here, but I don't, I don't know that that's right. Again, this is a close one. This is a good fight. It's a very good fight. Middleweights, ooh, Mahmoud Muradov, who I have been, I've been singing his praises for a while, and he had a setback in his last fight against Gerald Mershart a little over a year ago, actually. Um, he had an injury. Yeah, he was supposed to fight earlier and had an injury. Um, now he's, fight, he's facing Kyle uh, Bajalio. He looked good against Gerald Mershart. He put a beating on him in the first round, but gassed himself out a little bit, and Mershart is a very tough fighter if you give him those opportunities. I still am a pretty big believer in Muradov's upside. You know, he's, he lost a long winning streak in that fight. He has a couple of good finishes in the UFC over Trevor Smith and Andrew Sanchez, both knockouts. Um, he's 32, so still a fairly young guy, but probably needs to needs to rebound here. I expect him to. I mean, Bahalio is no joke, but I, I'm a bit, pretty big believer in Muradov, as I think I've indicated. Light heavyweights, Nikita Krylov and Volkan Uzdemir. Well, Uzdemir needs a win, huh? He got the win. That fight with Paul Craig sucked. But yeah, he needs a win here. Um, Krylov could also really use a win. Um, he knocked out Alexander Gustafson in his last fight, but Gustafson at this point is... Uh, washed beyond belief. I'm going to lean towards Krylov, I think, but eh, I don't know. Um, featherweights, Zubaira Tuhugov and Lucas Almeida. I'm going to pick Tuhugov here, but he's a weird guy. Um, he's had some good wins, but he's had some weird losses. And other, like, he was... His original rise through the UFC... Looked like he was going to be more of a force, and he just has not. Like, he debuted in the UFC in 2014, and injuries and time off and whatnot have kind of taken the hype and some of the, the ceiling away from him. That ceiling has been lowered. Um, lightweights, I think he's going to win here, but he might he might drop the ball again. Lightweights, Magomed Mustafaev and Yamato Nishikawa. Um, I'm going to lean towards Mustafaev. I mean, this is another guy who, when he debuted, I thought he was darn good. I mean, his early run through the UFC, he debuted for them in 15. Beating Piotr Hallman, he beat Joe Proctor. Had a tough fight with Kevin Lee where he did okay, but Lee was kind of in the ascendancy in 16. Doesn't fight again until 2019 when he beats Rafael Fiziev, actually, with a spinning back kick and punches. Drops a tough fight with Brad Riddell. That was in 2020. Um, 
He was supposed to fight Demir Ismagulov last year, but uh, Ismagulov badly missed weight, and that whole thing got scrapped. Um, he was supposed to fight Jamie Malarkey here. That uh, Malarkey pulled out, um, so again, in steps Nishikawa. Going to pick Mustafaev here, but that guy lost a lot of time, and it's kind of sad because he had a lot of ability. Welterweights, Abubakar Nurmagomedov and Gadzi, um, Omar Gadziev. I'm going to have to type one of those names. Um, so, Abubakar Nurmagomedov. One and one in the UFC. I actually think I might lean towards Omar Godziev. Um, let me double check Godzi there. Because he's fought in the UFC before. He's 13 and 1 overall. Lost to Kyle Bahalio in his UFC debut. Technical decision. I vaguely remember that fight. Yeah, I think I will lean towards Omar Godziev, but I am not sure about that. Let's see. Armin Petrosian and AJ Dobson. Feels like a safe enough pick for Petrosian here. Flyweights, Mohamed Makayev and Malcolm Gordon. Uh, poor Malcolm Gordon, man. I mean, he's on a two-fight winning streak now, but one of those was an arm injury doohickey. Um, Makayev. He's kind of the uber guy coming up. He's 7-0, and had a big undefeated... Um, there's no contest in there. But he had a big undefeated amateur career. Um... This feels like a little bit of a setup for Makayev, and I imagine he'll get the job done. And kicking everything off, Carol Hosa and Lena Landsberg. Yeah. Um, Hosa's coming off of a lost Sarah McMahon. Landsberg coming off of two losses to Sarah McMahon and Pan Zod. On that, I'll just go with Hosa, but who knows. And that's you know, lower level women's bantamweight. That's the card as it currently stands. Really, really, really good main event. I think I heard um I heard Chuck Mendenhall reference this actually. If you just kind of remove Jan and O'Malley and just look at the rest of the main card, that's a total of 81 fights without a loss between every fighter. If you add up the undefeated streaks of Oliveira, Makashev, Sterling, Dillashaw, O'Malley, Daryush, not even O'Malley, but Daryush, Gamrot, Fiore, and Chukagian, you get to like 81. It's stupid. There is so much momentum on this card clashing together. If you include Jan and O'Malley, O'Malley's got a decent enough winning streak, and Jan's only lost, one loss was his own doing, and the other, a, a competitive fight with Sterling. It's a very, very strong main card again. I might swap Brady and Muhammad for Chukagin and Fior, but I don't make the cards. Um, which would actually make those streaks longer, because both of them have very long winning streaks. Brady's undefeated, right? 15-0? Yeah, 15-0. and 0. And Muhammad, again, unbeaten in like nine fights. So... It's a really good card. I will be covering it this Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Per usual, please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right, let's move on to news, such as we have it. 
the only thing I really want to talk about here is UFC 282. Um, I mentioned already the other card that kind of got shuffled around. It was from November. Um, but 282, this is the December 10th card. We have a couple of fights. We have some fights made for this one. The presumptive main event, I say presumptive, is Yuri Prochka versus Glover Teixeira. A rematch of their fight. Bonkers fight. Wherein Prochka scored that last minute round submission over Teixeira. Um, so we're getting a rematch of that fight. Maybe, when I say best, best is, it is certainly the most wildly entertaining light heavyweight title fight ever my opinion is it the best i might still put like gustafson and jones one over it i very much like like that fight but this one a little bit wilder a little bit more back and forth and very and a lot more like fan friendly so if that's heavier in your criteria then this might be the top um currently also on this card let me run down the card that we currently have and i'll tell you the good bad and the otherwise um, Robbie Lawler versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. I expect that fight to fall out in some variety because they tried to make it several times. Edmund Shabazian gets something of a get-well fight against Dolce Longiambula, but if he drops that one, it might be time to cut bait. Uh, featherweights Billy Quarantillo and Anthony Hernandez. Good fight. TJ Brown and Eric Silva. Meh. Drikas Duplessis and Darren Till. It's a good fight. It's a tough welcome back for Darren Till. I actually like Duplessis. No one cares about Rosenstrike and Dawkins. Middleweights, Joaquin Buckley and Chris Curtis. That might be fun. Uh, let's see. Flyweights, Daniel De Silva and Vinicius Salvador. Man, middleweights, Bo Nickel and Jamie Pickett. Bo Nickel's UFC debut. Um, the other couple of fights you need, you need to pay attention to. There's one other bantamweight bout between... Oh, Ronnie Lawrence is back. Good for him. We'll probably win that one. Um, but we have a light heavyweight fight between... I imagine this is serving as the backup. One half of this is serving as the backup for the main event. Um, Jan Blahovich and Magomed Ankalaev. It's a good fight. The winner of that should be your next title challenger. I kind of like Ankalaev's chances there, actually. And your sad, sad, sad fight of the evening will be Ovin St. Preux versus Alexander Gustafsson. Just why? Uh, just why? Like, like when they announced this, the UFC's like tagline for this was two of the most seasoned fighters in the division. Like, if seasoned means, you know, riddled with bad knockout losses and five years past their prime. I mean, St. Preux, like he got a almost BS split decision win over Shogun earlier this year. Been stopped in two fights before that. Like the guy's just got more losses than wins in his last several fights uh and then gustafson man i feel bad for that guy i thought he beat daniel cormier when they fought for the belt i i really do i really did i and every time afterwards uh, i rewatched that fight i still scored for gustafson but gustafson is on a four fight losing streak and hasn't won since he oh man he styled on glover to though 2017 Knocked him out in the fifth round. That was a brutal fight. But since then, he got smashed by John Jones in their rematch. He got beat up and submitted by Anthony Smith. He got quickly run over by Fabricio Verdum, and Nikita Krylov knocked him out back in July of this year. This is just sad. This is just a sad fight. Um, here's the other thing about UFC 282. Normally, I wouldn't report on this, 
because this is one of those things that I have just started to tune out. But enough people who talk to the right people are mentioning this. The UFC is apparently trying to get John Jones on this card in his heavyweight debut. Now, talk of Francis Ngannou maybe, that's somewhat pursuant to Ngannou's knee being better after he had to get surgery on it. If not Ngannou, then Stipe Miocic. Um, at this point, again, like, John's talked about moving to heavyweight so much over such so long a period of time, I, I kind of tune it out. But, again, the right people are kind of saying that this is something that's being worked towards. Will it actually come to fruition? I don't know. Um, but we'll keep an eye on that one, because if you tack on to the rest of this card... John Jones in a heavyweight title fight, be that full belt or interim, because if he fights Stipe, there's going to be an interim belt on the line, especially given Ngannou's potential leaving. That's going to, I guarantee you. Um, that that would be a big deal. Be a very big deal. Um, again, nothing known yet, so that's all I'm going to mention, is it's being discussed, and it's being reported by people who would know this is more than just idle Twitter gossip. So, UFC 282 really starting to take shape. I believe that's the last pay-per-view of the year. Yes, it is. 283 is in January. So, keeping an eye on that. All right, let me check Twitter one last time, see if anything crazy is broken. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. All right, nope, Sue, plugs. I have two podcasts this week. Uh, Tuesday for Damn You Hollywood, myself, Mark Radulich, and... Jason... I want to say Jason Teasley. Um, myself, Mark Radulich, Jason Teasley, and... Is that Ronnie Adams? Might be Ronnie Adams. Uh, we will be reviewing Halloween Ends. I don't have a lot good to say about it. So tune in, and we will have at it. Yeah, that is Ronnie. Then Wednesday, I will be participating in a TV party tonight for The Midnight Club. That's the new Mike Flanagan show on Netflix, based on the work of Christopher Pike. Um, that is myself and Alexis Haina. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that if you're interested in my podcast. I have more thoughts. i got to finish that, actually. Most of the way through, but i got to finish it. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, if you're interested in some of my other thoughts on things besides MMA, movies and television on occasion, uh, should be a good one. Damn you, Hollywood, week after for Black Adam. It'll be on a Monday, because Mark's... Eh, because Mark's schedule for the month of October is weird. Uh, so, yeah, be on the lookout for that. Last week, let me pump this uh, real fast. I was part of the Damn You, Hollywood for the new Hulu Hellraiser. That was myself, Mark Radulich, and Sean Comer. That particular iteration of the Triumvirate got together, so be on, if you want our thoughts on that, the good, the bad, and the otherwise, and there's a little bit of all of that to discuss in that particular movie, uh, give that a listen. Anywhere you're listening to this, type in Damn You Hollywood, and you should be able to find my podcast over there. The usual spate of professional wrestling coverage is, of course, up this week as well. That's AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. Uh, MLW, if they release something on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, and then the UFC event on Saturday, again, more of an early morning thing on Saturday, so tune in for any and all of that if you are, are if you are at all inclined to do so. Could run for office with how well I speak. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. On that note, thank you very, very much, everyone. As always, I appreciate you. Please do stay safe out there. We will be back next week to review UFC 280. And we will, yeah, we will preview UFC on ESPN plus 71. Currently headlined by Calvin Cater and uh, Arnold Allen. Uh, do that look. At the Apex, right? Yeah, that's an Apex card. You don't even have to look at it. That's an Apex card. What do we got? But there is not much. Jared Vandera is on your main card. That ought to tell you a lot. Dustin Jacoby and Khalil Roundtree might actually be okay. Drakkar Close and Mark Madsen should not be on a prelim card. Andre Arlovsky's fighting. You know what? All I'm going to say about Arlovsky is, God bless him, the man makes like $300,000 a fight. You know, I, I mentioned this before, like, any one of these cards that's like got, you know, five or six um, fights that are just like contender series alum versus each other before they get their second deal, you could pay... The cost for Andre Arlovsky at this point is equivalent to basically a card filled with t- with uh, contender series alums still on their like 10 and 10 or 12 and 12 deal. That's... <laughs> oh man, Jake Matthews this week. With Sam Alvey gone, someone had to step up and start shamelessly defending the UFC, and it seems Jake Matthews is the one who decided to do it. Some other guys kind of supporting him, like, boy, this is, you know, I'm in the UFC now, and I'm so much better off than I was when I was making 14, when I was making like, you know, 14 bucks an hour. The point isn't that you're not doing better than you were at a part-time or an hourly wage job. The point is you should be doing so much better than you are. You guys, fighters, hear me. This is the only thing I'm going to say about this. Hear me on this, please. Look at how much UFC executives make. Look at it. Look at how much you make. Not just you, like, like, not just necessarily even just you as an individual. Like, you guys get less than 20% revenue. That's it. And you're defending this because you're better than, off than you were, which is true. You are. I, I have no doubt that you're better off than you were. You're limiting your ceiling. That's what you're doing to yourselves. Defending the practices that the UFC has right now is limiting your ceiling because you all, all of you, should be making so much more. Straight up. The UFC gets a giant check from ESPN for putting on 40-some-odd events a year, and you see none of it. You should be getting about, ideally, 50% of that check. It's a how big is that check each year? Like seven hundred million? Yeah, so if we take half of that, say three hundred million for the sake of argument. Take that and split it, even if you split it evenly. If you take that section of that segment of the revenue and you split that evenly between the rest of the fighters, how much more are you making a year? Take three hundred million dollars, divide it by what, five hundred fighters on the roster? So we're a little less than a million extra per fighter. Somewhere in what? 
$700,000 a year more range-ish. That's just math off the top of my head, so I'm probably wrong, and anyone who wants to do the math is free to do so. That's how much more you should be making a year. And you're not, and you won't, because you won't change it. Off my soapbox. All right, that's it. Thank you all again. See you next week. Until then, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.